you would please remain standing and open up your scriptures at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And if you are using a Bible provided for you, this is on page 4. Genesis chapter 3, we'll be reading verses 14 and 15. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Page four of the Bible is provided. People of God, hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed. And her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Thus is the reading of God's word. Let us now pray. Father, now bless this word preached unto us. Feed thy sheep. Strengthen thy church. Give us a plan for change in our lives to become conformed to this rule that we have before us. This Holy Spirit ruler. Give us, O oh God, this blessing. Send thy Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Some people see this text and they think that this is just merely the curse upon the serpent. But what you have before you, and you'll see it, as the title of the sermon is called in a lot of our Latin forefathers who wrote in Latin, which was the academic language until 1900, the Proto-Evangelium. The Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel or more accurately, the first proclamation of the gospel. You have it right here. You see, God had revealed himself in creation. God had revealed himself in uh, special revelation as he walked with Adam. God had revealed himself with the, the moral law inscribed on the heart of Adam. God had revealed himself in providence and the way he made Adam first and then Eve and many other things. But he had never revealed himself to redemption until this verse. You're looking at it. And I want you to notice something that's very, very important. I'm, I'm going to press this theme, I hope, sufficiently. He tells it to the serpent. There's several reasons for that. But I want to make sure you get this, especially my beloved children here. He tells the serpent and not Adam and not Eve concerning this proclamation of the gospel because Adam, who is used to being the covenant head, and everything that applies to him applies to his children, right? That's how it happened. That's the covenant of works. We went through that, Genesis chapter 2. But now something new is about to happen. And Adam needs to know that he can only come in personally now to this new covenant, to this second covenant, to this covenant of grace. And so he proclaims the gospel through the curse to the serpent. Not only because the gospel can be uh, comprehended in summary form as a curse against the devil, the curse against all that he has brought to the world in deceiving humanity, 
but also because if you are to enter into salvation, it must be personal. You don't enter in any longer in the way in which the covenant of works had taught. But now it comes by you personally becoming united with one who keeps this second covenant. And Adam needed to know that. He needed to know that he would be dealt with not as a federal head anymore, but as a cursed head. Cursed. The Proto-Evangelium can be summarized as this. It is the gospel given to us in promise form. It's the gospel given to us in promise form. And therefore, for those of you who I know like to take notes, as hopefully a memory help for some of you who do not, each and every one of what we're going to look at in this text is all about promise. And I'm going to start each point with that word, promised, promised, promised. And I want to start in the same order in which the Holy Spirit gives us. It's not necessary, but I think it would be helpful here. We start with verse 14. You're going to notice right away a promised curse. And you see this curse as what many have thought to be upon the serpent as mere creatures. But I can tell you, as you allow the Bible to, to feed into this text from, from all the way to Revelation, all the way back, you got Revelation saying, that old serpent, the devil. You have Romans 16 saying, you will trample under your feet. I think it's 16.5. Paul saying to the church, you will trample underneath your feet, the devil. Which is a direct reference here to verse 15. And so this serpent here, indeed a true serpent, which uh, the devil had to because of his nature to inhabit in order to communicate and be able to be seen in this way. Probably not having any divine permission to take some type of, of human form by God. But most fitting that he would take a serpent form because of the way that he is that which deceives. He is that deceiver. The one that's wily, the one that's cunning, the one that's subtle. And so he takes the serpent form. And that serpent form and the curse indeed upon the serpent is a curse upon the devil. And so you need to understand these things as a curse against the devil. If you first think of the serpent, you're, you're starting to contradict other scriptures. What was given unto Peter, that all the creatures of the Lord are pure and made pure. You look at this natural serpent and the Lord uses its image as an example of that which in its actions of, of the tongue coming out, of its actions of, of going throughout on its belly, of showing forth the curse which is upon the devil. And it helps you to understand what the meaning really is here. What the gospel really is. You've got to understand and put yourself in the shoes of our parents. When they saw God knife-handing, so to say, this serpent, what they are seeing is not the creature merely, but the talking creature. It was made to talk not by any act of nature. It was supernatural. It was the devil inhabiting that form, that creature which gave it the ability to talk. And therefore, it would have even been apparent to the one looking on that as you're, as you're reasoning with an unreasonable animal, that it, he must be talking to that which is reasonable within. That's the devil. 
Scripture tells us this. So that helps us uh, be able to take and understand with the other scriptures feeding into this. What is the promise curse? What is the promise curse against the devil? Well, we first see his debasement in this promised curse. We see the debasement in this fact. Thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Our first sin in our, in our parents, it caused the creation to groan and the cattle are now cursed. And the beasts of the field are now cursed. Everything's cursed in creation and it groans, but the devil will be cursed above. That angel of light, that glorious one that could inhabit with the other angels of the heavenly courtroom, yet now is cursed above even the cow. How is that? How is Satan debased? He's debased in his judgment. He's debased in his judgment. And you can see it in 2 Peter 2.12. It says this. 2 Peter 2.12 says, Natural, brute, beast, made to be taken and destroyed. The scriptures says that sin has had such an effect on creation that now they exist because they're going to be taken and destroyed because of sin. Because of your sin, humanity, here you have the destruction of all creation, the undoing of all the goodness in which God had originally intended and created. That was the effect of sin. But the natural brute beasts are made to be destroyed because of sin. How much more now the devil? And then Jesus, he preaches this. De Jesus pre preaches this in Matthew 25, 41. And Matthew 25, 41 shows forth the certainty of the debasement of Satan, of him being judged. Matthew 25, 41 says this. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. He's debased. He's judged. He is to be imprisoned in the everlasting fire. Can you imagine uh, the, how that would have made Adam feel? Can you imagine how it would have made Eve feel who was deceived by him? To know that he's now going to be judged. He's debased. He's cursed above all. But you can see there's not only his debasement and his judgment, but there's a further demeaning of the devil. You see it at the end of verse 14. You see, not only is he cursed above what's already going to be cursed because of sin, but also upon thy belly shalt thou go and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. What do these words mean? If it's not first intended to be towards a creature, but the reasonable creature, which is inhabited this form, what does it mean then? What is this imagery? And the Bible is replete with this imagery. There is no question what this means. We know exactly what this means. This means that Satan is all vanquished. Let me show you what I, what I mean so you can see this. Psalm 72 is an example. Psalm 72, 6. And such a good one to sing as well. We can only sing so many psalms. But Psalm 72, 6 says, talking about uh, Christ and, and all that he, he is. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish 
an abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. And then listen to verse 9. They, this is talking about the Messiah's kingdom. And then verse 9 it says, They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the death, the dust. Shall lick the dust. If you can imagine a conqueror putting his foot, as they often did, on the conquered enemy and forcing his face into the dust. This is the image of what's going to happen to Satan and all who are in league with him. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. That's what it says in Micah. Micah 7.17, also a prophecy unto the end of the kingdom. What does it say in Micah 7.17? It says this. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. That's the end of the enemies of Messiah. Well, this shows you something else. That it isn't just the serpent that goes on its belly. It's the worms too, right? Showing you forth that this isn't a curse upon the creature, but Satan. Satan, just as you inhabited that form which goes about on its belly, so you will be about your belly all the days of your life. You're going to be vanquished. From Adam on, you will be vanquished. Little by little, battle by battle, until all the enemies of the Messiah will be underneath his foot. Are you seeing the power of what's being judged here against him? And I want you to think about what this means for you. This should be a motivation for you, brothers and sisters, church, that Satan will be vanquished and is being vanquished, has been vanquished. The Lord Jesus, with his death, put his foot on his neck and forced his face into the dust. Did he get back up? No, he's on his belly. Yeah, he's attacking you. I, I see it. I understand it. I identify with you. You feel the darts of the devil. But remember this. He's not upright. He's not on two feet going with you with all the power of his might. He's on his belly. And from his belly, he's trying to fight you. And you need to realize that he's powerful. He's so powerful. But he's on his belly because of Jesus Christ. You need to realize that you are not fighting in a battle which is an enemy too strong and I think about, you know, this in history. I, I, of course, am studying a lot about the Romans and where I teach and their arch enemies. And maybe, children, you're studying this in world history. You remember who the arch enemies of the Romans were? It was the Carthaginians, right? You got the Punic Wars. You remember Hannibal? Come on, kids. You know this. What did Hannibal do? He rode that elephant, right? And he goes up across the Alps. What does he do? He goes through Rome. That's the Second Punic War, Right? And Hannibal almost took over the city. The only reason is because the Romans said, well, he, he almost vanquished our city, moving through it and going into southern Italy. We're just going to go back to Carthage, ransack them, and then he'll have to go home. And that's exactly what happened. They won the Second Punic War. And then Carthage was so reduced, they, were, they, were, they had no army left. They were giving Rome all of their money, pretty much, that they were making in surplus. They were a servant-like kingdom but still an independent kingdom just in servile status but then there was another war when they're kids you remember the third punic war remember it the third punic war 
What did Rome do? They said, we're going to destroy our arch enemy and make it so that they can never rise up again because they started rising up an army again. And the Romans said, oh, we're not having it. What did they do? They went and it was literal genocide. The Romans went and, and they were already weakened, so there was no chance but that Rome would win. And Rome just wipes out the Carthaginians, takes salt and mixes salt into the land so that they couldn't even rebuild the city. No grain would grow there for hundreds of years. They took a weakened enemy and they used that weakness against them to exterminate them. We're in a war. We need to start acting like we are. We're in a war against a devil who has control of the world. And we have to live in this world. Can't be of the world. We've got to live in it. And in living in it, we must have a military mindset of fighting against the devil. But in our mindset, we must remember that he's on his belly. We must remember that he doesn't have the power that he once had against our first parents. We need to remember that we have Christ the Messiah, the King, behind us who has already placed his face into the dust. Do you believe that about the devil today? If you do, it will strengthen your faith. You'll be able to fight against him a little bit better. You shouldn't underestimate his power, but you should also remember that he is a defeated enemy. He is dead and dying. The death sentence has been pronounced and the process of dying is underway. And you are part of it. You're part of the destruction of the devil. The world is to be Messiah's. And all enemies must be put under his feet. Even the last enemy, which the devil has, as he fights from his belly. And that's death. That's death. You notice, though, even his power is limited. Look at the last part of verse 14. It says, you go on your belly, dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. You need to remember a couple things here about this. Number one, Notice that he gets from the dust, he gets sustenance. Do you notice it? Yes, there is the picture of Jesus putting Satan into the ground, and he's, as he has his face in the ground, he's eating the dust. There is that sense in there. But you also need to realize that it has the meaning of sustenance as well. Because it would have been said some different ways if there wasn't meant to also show that the power of the devil... Uh, his uh, sustenance as he is still alive on his belly is the dust itself. Who's the dust? What was the curse that we're going to read about to Adam soon? Dust thou art and to dust thou shalt return. Humanity. This, the scripture talks about it being devilish when we're sensual. When we allow the lust of the flesh to have its way. That's devilish. It's said in Ephesians 6.12 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers, princes of the darkness of this world. Satan gets his strength not from some um, mere intrinsic power, but his ability with his intrinsic power to deceive men, deceive women, deceive nations, deceive princes, governors, governments. Of men. 
That is his sustenance. That's how he eats. It's only from that which is in the world. And this is why he's called, and I will read this one for you. It's a very important concept for you to grasp. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he's called the God of this world. Not because he's the ruler of it. Verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 4 says, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. Do you see? He eats the dust. He's sustained by the dust all the years of his life. What's the years of his life? Until he sees the second death, until he's cast into hell. He'll be bound for a portion of time, four times to be exact. But he nonetheless lives until he's thrown into hell. This gives us, as we contemplate and meditate upon what the power of the devil is, the power of the devil, and, the, and it's also a sign, the fact that his power in this world is through you, carnal-minded person, is through you, sensual person, is through you who's giving the lust of the flesh the time of day, you who are prideful, You give strength to the devil. You do. That's how he's living. If you weren't here, he would be dead. He's sustained. But Christians, we can counteract this. And I want to give you three ways in which you can. We can counteract the way in which uh, his power is manifested in this world. If it's true in James 3.15 that all those are devilish, which are earthly, earthly minded, earthly thinking, earthly goals, sensual, being led by the power of the lust of the flesh, then we can free ourselves from the binding of sin. We can weaken Satan by being heavenly minded. I love, I believe it was Elder Shipman's Psalm Meditation, Psalm 119M. It says that you ought to meditate all the day. Why? Because as you do that, you weaken Satan, who has power through your mind not meditating on his law all the day. How do you have the law in your mind? Brothers and sisters, I'm an adult like you. I understand how the memory fades and the difficulty of being a sponge. It's, those days are gone. Children, you are in the days of sponges. You sponge up the word. It's easy to memorize. It's easy to remember your catechisms. You need to take advantage of these days. Adults, you must not weary in this. Though it's difficult, it is needy that you take into your mind by memory the word of God. There's so many different methods, but the methods, I believe, that have been given to us, and we've covenanted to my brothers and sisters who are in covenant with me, this church, this Reformed Presbyterian Church. We've covenanted to be in the Word every day. That's how it gets into your mind. You think on that. If you start your day that way, you think about it. Think about it as you go to work. Think about it during work when you're not having to think about how to do your work things. Think about how to do your work things in light of what you've read. You can really have your mind upon it as you apply it to every part of your life, but it takes a heavenly-mindedness. It takes a love for the Word. Do you have it? 
You've got to have a fighting spirit. There, there is, I, I love how Elder Shipman res, referred in Genesis 29 to the fact that Jacob, he worked for his bride. You see this work for the bride, which Christ has done. And we, patterning ourselves after him, can also work with a fighting spirit. Ephesians 6.12, if it's true that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, then what does it mean we wrestle with? What do we fight with? We got to be fighting, right? That's the implicit thing in that text, that we're fighters. Are you fighting? What does fighting look like in the Christian life? Fighting looks like crying because of sin. It's called repentance, sorrow. It's called hatred. Do you have a hatred for your sin? This is a fighting spirit. It's what it looks like. A fighting spirit is one which is humble. Let me tell you the best fighters. And I've read up on some of them. The Mike Tysons of the world. And I'm talking about physical fighting. And trying to see if there's some type of spiritual thing which applies. And it is. Mike Tyson got so good in the ring because he had good coaches. And he listened to them. And he doesn't come across as a very you know, humble person at all. But he had to be humble to get good in that. And he did. He became a professional by listening to coaches. How much more must you have that fighting spirit by being humble and listening to those who Christ is putting in your life? We're here. Why are we here? Yes, we're here to praise God. We're here to worship God. We're also here to be one another's coaches. That's called edification. A fighting spirit in this congregation would be this young man listening to this man and this woman listening to this older woman and sharing one another's life, building up one another, not tearing one another down. If you fight within your own family, the family becomes weak. If you fight within your own congregation, the congregation becomes weak. If you edify one another, strengthen one another, we will be able to go out stronger to fight. 2 Corinthians 4.4, he's the God of this world, but the purpose or the meaning of that is because of his way of getting into the minds, deceiving men through, through deception. And he does this for a purpose. It's a great goal. If I can just take your mind away and I can take it away with TikTok or I can take it away with Things which are not that TikTok is evil by itself, but of course it can be, right? It's, a, it's an entryway into the mind. I know I had kids when I was teaching in the middle school. They said, oh, I spent eight hours on TikTok. I just couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop. I had to watch video after video after video. And I was thinking, how fitting, how smart is the devil to give us something that's so addicting that we can just scroll, and it's not just TikTok, right? It's YouTube. It's social media in general. It's just the computer. It's our devices. Our devices can consume the mind. Is yours? It can be books, too. It can be theological books, people. I'm telling you that you can have such a consumed mind about particularities of theological doctrine that's true and holy that you can forget to be pious. You can forget the simple things of prayer. The most read people I know are not good prayers. And that, those older widows that I know, the best prayers, their eyes are too dim to read. But the God blesses them through prayer. 
be more of a prayer than a theological book reader. Though those things are good too in measure, aren't they? And I do appreciate those things. That's the promised curse in verse 14. But notice it moves on in 15. And I want you to see this, children. Uh, it moves from a promised curse as his eyes is almost toward the devil. But then something greater forms in 15. It's a promised accomplishment. A promised accomplishment. This is a sure accomplishment. Do you see it when it says in the text, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. What's the accomplishment? The accomplishment is the enmity. What is enmity? It's hard. It just means like a hatred. Right? So there's a hatred between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Okay? That's the accomplishment. Now, we need to unpack that a little bit. Because let me tell you something. As you look, I want you to look at your parents right now. Look at them, not your biological, but your first parents. Look at Adam and Eve right now. What do you see? You should see a man and a woman at enmity with God. They hate God. They want to be like him. They, want, they have pride that has welled up in their heart. And it's caused their ultimate destruction with the unbelief and the distrust upon God's word. That's our first parents right now. If it's true that somehow God's going to take this woman and the seed of this woman is going to be at enmity with the seed of this serpent, there has to be a change in them. Do you see that? In order for God to fulfill this accomplishment, he must take the enmity which is in them between him and them and create peace. What is that called? Children, it's called what is justification? What is adoption? Justification, of course, is that peace brought to you by God by this divine act of you getting the righteousness of Christ and your sin going on Christ and him paying for it and that righteousness being your uh, card of declared righteous before him, right? There's peace legally and active in justification. It's the big fancy word of the fulfillment of the accomplishment of this promise of enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. I want you to see that this is something which does not merely end in justification or adoption in its promised accomplishment. You aren't gathered in as the sons of God. Okay, the peace continues its work. God says, I'm at peace with you and my peace will continue. And so you need to understand that in these words, I will put enmity. You need to understand there's groups in order for there to be groups. There has to be continuations. And think about it this way. I'm going to reveal the hand. Who's the seed? Who's the seed? Look at the grammar. It. You see that word? Oh, it's so in, inconspicuous, right? In our, it, we don't even know uh, exactly what it's referring back to, don't we? In the original, it's very clear. It's, it's it because seed is neuter in the original. Referring back to her seed. Seed. One seed. It's not plural, which is why it's it and not some type of plural form of the neuter in our language. It's referring to the it, Christ. 
You've got to watch out now. Some Roman Catholic Bibles, you know what they put? Her. They, they, it goes like this. She shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Yeah. Oh, is that going to be a way for the mediatrix to come? Yes, it's coming. But I'm telling you now what the actual Hebrew is, and not the confused Latin that they use, but the actual original language says it, referring to the seed, referring to the seed which all throughout the Bible is pointed to as the seed of the woman, the one who is to come, the anointed one, the chosen one, the son in whom I have covenanted. I loved about Psalm 89 that we, we sang. You, it gets into that, doesn't it? It gets into that Psalm 89, this seed. Psalm 89a, we, we sang, thy seed, singular, I will establish firm forever to remain, and unto generations all thy throne I will maintain. How? It's impossible unless in this collective idea of seed is not just Christ, but all in him continuing in what we call sanctification. This promised accomplishment is not only justification and adoption, it has to be sanctification. Because it's an enmity with the world, with the dust, which in Satan gets his power, blinding the minds of men. But how will it be accomplished? In her seed, in the mediator. How do you know this? Because the amazing promise of the person of the seed is that he would be of a woman. Galatians 4.4 is the eminent place. I could bring you to several, but 4.4 will have to be sufficient. Galatians 4.4 says this. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son. Made of a woman. Made of a woman. There's the fulfillment. There's how he was going to do it. There's how it's accomplished in the glorious person of the Son. The Word. I brought you to Galatians 4.4. I'm going to bring you to one more. As you think about his glorious person. Let me bring you to James 4.4. we got Galatians 4.4. But how about James 4.4? I love when that kind of stuff happens. In God's providence. It says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you see the two seeds there? The seed of the world, the seed of the serpent, the seed of God. Those who are born again. Those who are justified, adopted, and being sanctified until they will finally be completed at the sanctification of that great day where all things are made new. And you, like the new Jerusalem, will descend from God. You'll be shown off as his glorious bride. Well, is enmity between you and the world? This is not just, it's so easy to pick on the children, isn't it? Because it's like, oh yeah, you guys... You really are in the world all the time, right? Us adults, you know, we're not, we're not as much because we got to go to work. We got a job. You just play around with your school books and, and TikTok, right? <laughs> but this is the truth. Adults, you are just as culpable. You're just as in the world as your children. 
And this is the problem you got to deal with in your life. You think you're at work, but where's your mind? You think that you are doing something for the house. But what kind of distractions are in your life? Are you really at enmity? If I could come into your life and I could look at it like a movie, would I say, that's a life at enmity with the world? Would I say that? Or would I say, wow, there's a lot of world in that life. You might be at enmity with God. If you're in friendship with God, then I look at your life and I say, there's enmity with the world. Between your life and his life, the seed, the serpent. But I want you to see eminently, not just your own life, as it is a construct of all of your actions and your thoughts. I want you to think about your own life as whether or not it's a new creation or not. And it, it, I have not, I'm not forcing this thought upon you right now. This comes straight from the text. I'm going to show you. You see, because the last thing that this text in verse 15 has for us is a promised means of accomplishment. It says the promised accomplishment, justification, adoption, sanctification, but also has a promised means revealed here too. And it's a wonderful means. And you see, this means makes a person new. Like we read about in Revelation. You'll be made new. If the creation is going to be made new, how much more will you be made new? It's through this promised means of this accomplishment. Look at the text. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This sermon is one of three that are coming your way to give you the context for, for what this means. I'm not even scratching the service today, guys. I didn't have time to even scratch it today. I'm going to teach you about the covenant of redemption taught here in this text. I'm going to teach you about the covenant of grace taught here in this text. I'm going to teach you about all that God has promised for you. But it's all we can get in right now is just this promised means of accomplishment. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. I want you to see his heel. I want you to imagine... I didn't expect you guys to look at my feet so much. I'm a little embarrassed, but I'm going to take it. I want you to imagine the Savior. Right? Can you imagine he had to be, had to be nailed to a tree? And as he's nailed to a tree, I want you to imagine what he has to do. If your foot is nailed to a tree, you have to Brief when you hang, you can't breathe. So you have to. Do you, do you see how I can't put my weight on the nail? It, it just it hurts too much. But you push up like with your heel. It, you can kind of like wedge it against the the tree, and you can use your weight on your heel to go up and to breathe. Because I'm telling you guys that I. I have to finish what the Father has given me to do, and so I have to, I have to get the vinegar. I have, to, I have to keep enduring, not having my Father's 
love palpable to me, like it's been my entire life, and now I'm alone, I feel alone, I'm thinking about the Psalms to help me, but it's not even seeming to help. I'm just pushing, and it's hurting on the nail, but it's hurting my heel. My heel hurts so much, every time I gotta push I gotta push up, I gotta do it so often because otherwise I'll suffocate. And those which the Father has given me, I will not be able to save. My heel must be bruised. It must be bruised because of their sin. And it just hurts so much, but I know that if I endure this pain, I will win. I will win for them righteousness, forgiveness a new life, an adoption. I will be a, they will be sons. They will be brothers. They will be sisters. They will be able to reign with me forever if I will just bruise my heel. And he did it for you. He loved you that much. You see, that's the twofold victory which you see here. You see the bruising of the heel of our Savior. Oh, Satan hurt him so bad. Hurt him so bad. But there's something else. That same heel that was bruised on that tree was bruised upon the head of Satan. I'm telling you that he triumphed not only in his active and his passive obedience, but he triumphed by crushing the head of Satan because he has become the author of your faith. That great Punishment upon his body for your sin. That great punishment won for you faith. A faith that's not a one-time deal. It's a faith that's given week after week, day after day. All the mercies are new every day. If you will just take hold of him, he is the one who has triumphed. He's the author of your faith. Romans 16.20 says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. And so not only did he win personal salvation, what he won was oneness with Christ, a unity with Christ, such that when he, with his bruised heel, saved you, that same bruised heel is yours. And you can use it to crush the head of Satan in your life, to crush the head of Satan in the congregation, to crush the head of Satan in your friend's life, because you've got to edify them. You've got to build them up today. That's what you're here for. This is why we don't meet on Zoom. This is why you're here right now together, that you can edify one another, that you can partake of this twofold victory of the bruising of the heel and the bruising of the head. The bruising of the heel for your forgiveness. The bruising of the head for the victory of your faith in this life. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Oh, it puts whole new spin on Mark 16, 18. They shall take up serpents. Yeah, Paul did that. And you can do that. Because you have the heel of Jesus Christ crushing the heads of the serpents. You've got to take them up. The enemies of Christ will be vanquished. But you must receive him now. Do you see that? Do you see how this here puts before us two groups? Her seed, her seed, and the serpent seed. Which are you? Which are you? If you receive Jesus Christ, you're her seed. 
He died for you. He rose again for you. If you're the serpent seed and your mind is darkened, you will never see the light. You will never see the light in this life, and you'll never see a light in the life to come. Instead, you'll see the second death, the lake of fire, eternal torments, punishment. Which do you choose? Is the question. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise thee for thy heels. Thank you for so accomplishing our redemption. Oh, that heart seemed to explode. We pray that you will give us such a heart for the unbelievers. We pray that you will give us such a heart in our life. Help us to live, to make our Savior who suffered for us smile for us. As his accomplishment is seen to be in us and in our life, be with those who are here today, especially the precious children who have not been gathered yet to convert them. Those who may be sitting, as even as adults, unbelievers, convert them. Let them see this glorious Savior, this person of Christ, made of a woman, God and man, that we may have in his humanity a death for our sin, and in his deity the glorification of our natures. We love you, O God. We pray that you will bless now your people for the rest of the day.